Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malkins, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In American schools, grades, tests, and transcripts are taken for granted. But should they be? What functions do these technologies serve? Can these technologies be improved? And how did these technologies become such a central part of the education landscape in the first place? In their new book, Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning, but don't have to. Ethan Hutt and Jack Schneider explore these questions and more. Ethan Hutt is Associate Professor of Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Jack Schneider is the Dwight W. Allen Distinguished Professor of Education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Ethan Hutt, Jack Schneider, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So you guys have written this book off the mark. I'm sure you've done a number of, uh, of interviews. You've kind of been over this mill, but let me ask you, you're on the Report Card podcast. Have you ever felt as much in enemy territory as you do right now? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although we did come ready to dig foxholes if we need to. Fair enough. Fair enough. You guys are historians of education. Let's start with how we got to where we are now. We didn't always have grades and transcripts in American education. So take us in the Wayback Machine. What did learning look like before grades and transcripts were the structures we worked in? Ethan? Before there were grades and transcripts, I mean, schooling was quite informal. Um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't accountability. It doesn't mean that people didn't pay attention. But the most common way uh, in the early 19th century that parents and community members would assess the school is they would actually gather as part of an exhibition. And teachers would kick questions to the students. Students would answer them. They would often have um, pre-rehearsed or you know recitations or little plays. And that was all that grading looked like. Um, people who came out and thought that there was good discipline, that the students had learned or demonstrated knowledge. I mean, it was all done in one day. A little bit later in the 19th century, you start getting things like school inspectors who actually go and check out how many library books there are, whether to talk with the teachers, you know, engage with the students. And even a little bit um, later than that, you start having classrooms that are quote unquote grading students by physically moving them around in the classroom. So you might have a tutor give a, a student a question. If he gets it right, he moves forward in the class. Maybe he joins a new group, but it's all, the key thing is that it's all ephemeral, right? It's basically visually uh, apparent what's the what the grading is, and there's nothing recorded for posterity. There's no report card home. There's no uh, writing it up in the newspaper. It really is just in the moment. And the communication, the grading is is either between the teacher, the student and the family, or more often, it's just the teacher and the students and their and their colleagues in class. So it's a very narrow window into schools. And it's it's not recorded. It's not formal. You know, Jack, do you want to take over the? Yeah, let me just part? just ju jump in and add uh, something that, that we discussed throughout the book, which is that Grading and the use of test scores and the creation of these permanent records via things like transcripts, right? All of that happens for a reason. And we identify three core reasons in the book. One is an effort to communicate, right? Either with the student and the student's family or with more distant audiences, an effort to uh, motivate the student, right? And this becomes particularly important once compulsory schooling kicks in. And then an effort to synchronize a pretty decentralized system. Now, that synchronization piece, if you go far enough back, is not on the table. 
right? People recognize schooling's a local issue and there's no effort to try it. Jack, like orient us in a decade or two. Yeah, sure. I, I think that we're really talking about the late 19th century when we're talking about synchronization. But the other two pieces, the communication and the motivation, that's there all along. It gets it gets more urgent, particularly that motivation piece, right? Where once students are compelled by law to be there, educators are looking around and going, I need more tools in the toolbox to try to get these young people excited about what's going on here. And the piece about communication, um, you know, becomes more urgent for different audiences. But I do want to say, like, you know, go as far back as you want to. And one of the things we do in the book is we take you back to, you know, 17th century England uh, and, you know, 18th century America. But the motivation piece is still there, even for students who have consciously and willingly opted into schooling, right? So you're saying, hey, you're going to earn a Latin honorific here if you work hard enough, right? You could graduate summa cum laude. And the communication piece is still there. And when Ethan is talking about moving students around in the classroom, that's both motivation and communication that teachers are trying to engage in there, right? Head to the front of the class, you star, um, you're doing really great. And now I'm going to punish you laggards by sending you to the rear. So these, these three purposes are with us all along. And I did just want to highlight, like, they're there from the beginning. Right. So... But it is pretty clear now that across the United States, right, we know what an A is. There's some debate on whether it's an F or an E. But basically, like the structure of grades is really remarkably homogenized. Public, private, you know, wherever you're going to go. How did that lock in? And I'm going to push even further. Transcripts work sort of the same way across all these. How did these concepts colonize American education? So... You first get report cards in about 1850. So Horace Mann is worried that there is not this recording. And he talks about grades uh, and report cards as basically being what he calls like merchants ledgers. He wants to see students recognizing that investments they are making in the short term are going to pay off over the long term and see this sort of arc of, of growth. So it's part of the um, motivation aspect that Jack was talking about. But this communication aspect, and this goes to communication to distance audience, distant audiences, and also the synchronization piece, you can think of it roughly as saying, look, when you, when everyone is taking the same classes, you don't really need transcripts and you can, and when very few people are going to school or reaching each level of school. So when like less than 10% of the population is graduating high school and very few people are going to college, you don't need elaborate mechanisms to rank uh, I mean, simply passing was was sort of a sufficient marker. So right around the the turn of the 20th century, like the first two decades of the 20th century, you begin to have students, like increasing numbers of students, both going to high school, completing it, but also mobility within the state and then moving you know, to, for college or moving across. And that's when you really see educators say like, okay, we need to standardize both how we're recording this stuff and we need to, that the marks make sense. And so there's really an effort um, often led by uh, the NEA and teachers unions or education associations to really standardize so that educators are communicating in the same way. And to your point that when employers, colleges, parents see the marks, 
they're not some idiosyncratic set of marks. They're they're the standard number. So we basically see kind of in the progressive era, the 1920s, a set of, okay, a class is worth a unit, you get a grade, and that these are accumulated and recorded so that these records can follow the students. Prior to basically 1920s, 1930s, you just it didn't really matter enough. There weren't enough students to really, to, to really make it make sense. And there, there was no, there wasn't going to be a tremendous breakdown of the functioning of the, of the educational system because so few institutions actually engaged with any given student. So that's kind of the place where we see it kind of concretize. And then I think if you, in, in broad strokes, the more that, um, what's written down on those transcripts where the, how the classes are recorded, the more competitive schooling becomes, the more important that getting from high school to college and not just college, but a good college and college and grad school, you see the pressure on the transcript. And so that those marks not only need to be uniform, but they really matter. The difference between an A and a B uh, starts to, to be really important. And that's where you start to get a lot of attention, both on the question about whether student learning is really captured by the transcript. Does that really reflect what students know? And then also this pressure that like, Teachers need to be marking in a way that is rigorous because great inflation or, or efforts to, to not properly rank students becomes really problematic for people down the line. So that's kind of the, the in broad strokes, the rough history of, of how we kind of get to at least the place where we're, we're in the present day. I'm just going to add a brief piece here because that was a very thorough answer. Uh, and the brief piece is that this is a story of simultaneous invention, right? This is not a story of... Uh, you know, a small cabal of assessment experts getting together and decreeing, you know, thou shalt grade on an A through F scale, remove the letter E uh, and record it for posterity on a transcript, you know, that looks about like a Twitter post does. Um, it's, it's invention in order to serve the purposes that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, right? How am I going to motivate students here? And you see a a thousand different ways that educators are trying to dole out the equivalent of a gold star, right? How am I going to communicate this with families? Um, and so you do see, you see A through Z grading, you go far enough back, you see A through E, A through F, A through, right? A through a lot of things, one through a hundred, one through 10. Uh, and today you still see some of that stuff around the world. And in the United States, you see a lot of hybridization still to this day, right? Because what is an A? An A is a 93 out of a hundred, right? It's a combination of two different scales there. And so there is this story of simultaneous invention and a kind of circling around a small number of practices. And then the one piece that I'll add to the story that Ethan was telling about how we end up with the set of assessment practices we have, one key set of actors there is publishers, right? Publishing, you know, here is um, the Ethan Hutt scale for measuring uh, student achievement in history. And what you see there is uh, a real winnowing in on a 1 through 100 or 1 through 10 scale, as well as the use of letter grades there 
Um, so, you know, it, it's a both and story, right? Simultaneous invention and the roles of particular members of a network who have a little bit more power and authority to draw people towards particular practices. So this is sort of an aside, but what about the historical curiosity of where did the E go? I mean, why would you have like five levels that end in F? Is it because they wanted to say you failed and F is for failure? I mean, is that what it is? Pretty much. Pretty yeah. Much. F is for, yeah, pre pretty much F is for failure. <laughs> you know, it's but like, it, it, it I is, mean, it it's is great, like, that's the implicit yeah. message. You can be yeah. nice and beat around the bush, but that's what it means, right? You yeah. failed on this, yeah. this exam. You got an F, it's not an E. Yeah. That when we, when we do the second edition of the book, there will be a whole chapter. What happens to E? We're still trying to get to the bottom of that puzzle. That's, that's good. Why don't you title that chapter F is four. And then just, you know, the ellipsis there at the end. Yeah. Um, so we're talking a lot about grading and transcripts in days gone by. What about like the last 50 years? Has it been relatively stable, Jack? Yeah, it has. There have been some notable trends, right? So we will talk about grade inflation. But what we have seen is that by about the mid 20th century, the transcript becomes the transcript. People expect A through F grading. People expect that there will be standardized tests and they will have a kind of legible format. And one of the things that's important for listeners to be thinking about is the role of expectations and acculturation in American education, right? One of the biggest roadblocks to reform is the fact that we, most of us, attended schools ourselves, and then have these very particular expectations for what schools will look like and what they will do. It is not a real school unless there is a teacher in the room standing in front of the blackboard, working through you know, what we recognize as one of the main curricular subjects. Students have books. They've got pencils out. Maybe tablets. We'll accept tablets these days. Um, but that's the vision of the quote-unquote real school. That's what David Tyack and Larry Cuban called the grammar of schooling. And by about 1950, right, plus or minus 10 years there, you see the emergence of a new grammar of schooling, which is the way that we assess. And once that becomes pretty standard, people then begin to balk at any alternatives, right? So, okay, what is this narrative report card? Great. I like the story you told me about my kid, but what's my kid's grade? And in addition to these cultural expectations, we also see the emergence of particular kinds of systems and structures that require test scores or grades. So think about college admissions offices, right? They, they build their systems around the expectation that they're going to get a grade point average from students when students apply to college. Now, there have been some changes, right? One of the changes that we've seen over time, and I alluded to it a moment ago, is grade inflation. It's a real thing. I think that people often propose simplistic responses to this phenomenon, or you know, they act a little too much like the sky is falling, but it's a real phenomenon. And why is that? It's because many more students are now in school, expecting to graduate from high school, and planning to apply to post-secondary education, that their grades matter more to them today than half a century or a century ago. And as a result, it matters more when a student gets a C on their transcripts, 
right? So whereas that may once have read as a teacher trying to send a message to a student, hey, this isn't your best work, it now reads to a student who knows, wait a minute, this is going on my permanent record, right? This is not just a communication from my teacher to me. This is a communication from my teacher to the future about me and what I can do. A C reads to a student now as, I can ruin your life, right? I can limit opportunities for you. I can close doors. And so it's really a natural response then that we see educators become increasingly hesitant to use those scary letters in the alphabet. And we see more work by parents to intervene to make sure their students don't get those. So we have seen changes like that. But in terms of the, the infrastructure of assessment, it really hasn't changed a lot in the past several generations. So it seems to me that when you look at the history, it's like schooling becomes big business, and then we sort of need the scales and measures and, and so forth. And these scales and measures, they serve different uses, not completely divorced from one another, but they're serving different purposes for a system that needs to run and communicate among it, its diverse parts and motivate and synchronize at the same time. But it also does the same thing for parents and students, right? It sends messages but it works differently and getting a system that works well in both those orbits at the same time is a pretty tricky wheel to balance. Am I getting that right, Ethan? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And um, like Jack was alluding to the, the challenge of finding a way to communicate honestly with students while also knowing that the future is looming. I mean, in, in really concrete examples, you know, for a lot of students who um, uh, have student loans, you know, that they're getting loans from the government to go to college, you know, there's a minimum GPA that they have to maintain during the Vietnam war. There were minimum GPAs you had to maintain in order to keep your draft referral status. Um, the same is true, you know, for NCAA athletes getting into college, they have to have a certain amount. So there's a way in which, you know, they're, educators feel that impingement that like, I'm trying to communicate honestly about how a student is doing, but I also am trying not to make them ineligible or not to cut off their college career. You know, so it'd be, it's exactly that, that where it's like, there are two different sets of messages and educators often find themselves sort of like caught in between. The other piece that we haven't really mentioned, we mentioned at the beginning, the synchronization is, you know, a lot of countries decide to make a trade that, you know, rather than having, you know, crosswalks of, of courses and GPAs and units and how many, you know, they just standardize more of the, of the content. You know, we could get rid of a lot of our standardized assessments um, if we simply, or a, a lot of the, you know, the games that people play with what the title of the course is. Is it an honors course? Is it an AP course? Is it an AP course where you don't have to take the AP? If we simply said, okay, well, there's one textbook in America or two textbooks and everyone's going to learn the same stuff and everyone's going to do exactly the same thing, you know, you could get rid of some of the mechanics of our system that tries to sort of align and synchronize. From my perspective, that's a bad trade. Um, I'd rather have a little bit of the overlap and give communities decisions about what courses they want to offer to students, you know, how they want to evaluate the work in those courses. And that requires some giving over of discretion to teachers about grading and assessment and those kinds of things. But, you know, we should mention it that, that there are alternatives where you simply have more standardization at the top and then you, you don't have to worry about some of the mechanics of this stuff. 
we're living this right now in Massachusetts, what Ethan was just talking about, where there is a graduation requirement in Massachusetts that every student pass the MCAS, which is our standardized test here. You don't pass the MCAS, you don't get a diploma. And there is a very strong push to repeal that. And what we would fall back to is grades, grades in courses, and uh, a level of local control that I think those at the state level are not comfortable with. They're not comfortable with this idea that all they're going to be able to see is the name of the course and the grade that the student earned there. And that's exactly the tension that Ethan is pointing to there, where you know, we could, we could stop playing this game if we said, well, listen, uh, we're going to know exactly what course that was because there's going to be a mandate about what everybody takes in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. Um, but, you know, this tension is, is a uniquely American one. And I think that people are not comfortable with either total local control, right? No synchronization across places. They're uncomfortable with that. And they're equally uncomfortable with total centralization, right? A ministry of education. I don't need to tell somebody from AEI that there is worry about total centralization. Uh, let me ask you about these three things that you say that grades, tests, and transcripts do. Let's boil it down to grades. Uh, I want to talk about an intern, motivation, communication, and synchronization. Um motivation, that may sound overwrought. So how do grades motivate students? What are you talking about when you say they motivate? Ethan? I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, the idea is, I think a lot of people would say like, we wish students would love learning for the sake of learning, would want to go to school and do well just because of this internal drive. I mean, that is true in pockets, I think, for most students. But I don't know any student who, you know, the sole reason that they um, that they work hard in in school is because they are, you know, intrinsically motivated for every day and every subject. And so grades, I think, and I think this is a, a totally reasonable thing. Um, grades function as a extrinsic motivator. Like if you you may not understand the reason why we're asking you to do this, and you may not understand the long arc or the the doors that open that we're trying to keep open for you, the possibilities in your future. And so we're going to give you a very clear message about, look, you got to do well, you do well, you get the, you get the, um, you get the A, or you get the hundred. And so, you know, they just, they act as a, as a motivator. I mean, people, you know, in the, in the great inflation debate argue that, you know, when, when we give the grade too easily, then it demotivates. And I think that's a real concern. The other concern is, and this is, goes just to the fairness of grading and, and the way that maybe we overemphasize the motivational factor of grades is students who don't do well, um, it demotivates them. They say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that well. I just want my pass. And in fact, there was a new study uh, with data out of North Carolina that suggested when the state change the grading range that students on the lower end of the spectrum basically maintained their expectation about what grade they got. And so even though the, the state made it, quote unquote, easier to get higher grades by expanding the the grade range from seven points, so like 93 used to be the limit on, on an A, it moved it to 90, so the standard 10 point, students responded by going to class less. So there's a real sense that students sort of sense I'm a C student. I'm a, that's all I want. And so in the same way that we can say like students can be too obsessed with getting good grades, it can also be that because we've oriented so much around of learning around getting grades, 
can actually demotivate students and, and get them maybe not to engage. So it's about finding a balance, but I don't think there's any world in which you don't have some motivating factor in our, in our at least in our current system. So let me ask two sort of forms of this because I, I get this. I mean, one of the things about grades that seems to be like a pretty smart technology is that uh, schools use them like breadcrumbs, right? Like you do this homework and you get a grade. And if you're doing well on that one, well, you know, keep at that. And we're building it up until you get to the test. And if you stay at a 95 on all these pieces, at the end, you should probably get to a 95, which would seem to be difficult if you didn't have sort of clear signals across the way. And the flip side to this is if you keep telling kids, well, that's a 66. Yep, again, you got a 66. Then the kid can, instead of sort of working on their motivation, they could be like, well, I'm just trying to clear the bar because that's that's who I am. And so these things can function sort of the way they're supposed to, but they can have differential effects on different kids. Yeah, that that is really nicely put, Matt. And we don't have to accept that, right? We don't face a binary choice here where we say, well, either we have to throw out this communication function or even the motivation function, right? The breadcrumbs are a communication function, right? You're doing well, keep it up. You're on the right track, right? And they're also a motivator, right? Hey, good job, gold star, gold star, gold star. We don't have to throw those things out while also recognizing some of the problems there, like telling a student, you're a D student, you're a D, you're still a D student, right? You are not going to benefit from this system. So don't put any more effort in than is required to just earn a diploma. So one of the things that we can do is we can actually decouple the communication from that sort of long-term permanent record piece, right? The communication that an educator is doing and saying, hey, right? This isn't your best work. That doesn't need to then funnel into the grade book in a way that leads to the permanent record. And one of the reasons why I think that's actually really important is that not all students are learning at the same rate. And if a student hasn't hit the benchmark by whatever the date is, right? November 15th, but they do hit it a month later, why should the transcript indicate that this student doesn't possess that competency? So one of the things that we use as a metaphor in the book is the fact that most of us didn't come out of the womb knowing how to ride a bicycle. And so depending on when your bike riding test was given, you may have a permanent record there that says, no, now Malchus doesn't know how to ride a bike. And you might then say, wait a minute, you gave me that test when I was three and a half years old, but by four, I was cruising on a two-wheeler. Right. And so one of the things that we could do if we were serious about this is say, well, your course grade is eventually going to be determined by these competency based assessments that you could potentially take more than one time. Right. Once you've got the competency, your transcript ought to reflect that. And, and we can then still maintain the communication that goes from an educator to a student that then just becomes de-weaponized, where the student isn't thinking like, oh my God, another D on my record? I'm never going to succeed in this class. But a teacher could honestly give students feedback that says, hey, like you're still not where you need to be for this. And then we would also want to talk about well, how do we then get students there? Because right, it's, it's a bit uh, of a sort of fictional thought experiment to think, well, just because you give students information that's be, been de-weaponized, that they're somehow naturally going to get to competency. But that's a different kind of policy conversation. 
Let me ask for a minute about setting standards and using grading policies, right? Because you could confuse the two, right? Like, well, we have all this, we have these mechanisms. They look the same. They're all letter grades. And we want to motivate disadvantaged kids to meet the same standards as advantaged kids. We don't want rural kids to have some lower standards than the kids from the city, so on and so forth. Um, do grades help with that standards setting or are these two things totally sort of orthogonal from one, one another? How, how should I think about that, Ethan? It's a really good question. And I think they're, they're not orthogonal to each other, but they do operate kind of in different spheres. I mean, going back to our standardization question, one of the you can think of it as strength or weakness of American policy is we set standards and the standards are often extremely broad. They describe um, either knowledge sets or abilities or dispositions, but they never include curricula or pedagogy because we've always left those open to individual districts to sort of select or individual teachers to make decisions. So they don't always... They don't. I mean, we we find in practice just straight up that that they that teachers and schools operationalize and pursue these um, standards in very different ways. I mean, it's one of the reasons that AP is such a popular program because the AP program has both a curriculum, though you don't have to follow it, but it has an, an exam at the end that really uh, functions as a you know a, a crosswalk where a, a school can look at the grade in the class the the exam score on the AP and triangulate. So, I mean, there is a real rub and there's a conversation to be had about how much standardization do we want our standards to provide and how much we want them to actually be roadmaps for teaching and pedagogy. So far, we've said really no. I mean, but but moving to standardized tests is the way that historically, I mean, Jack mentioned the, the competency exam, the exit exam in Massachusetts. I mean, this was something that we did in the 70s and 80s. We also experimented where we were worried that, gee, our grades and our standards are not reflecting the same thing. And so let's put in a standardized test as a way of a, of a backstop. I think part of the problem is we we probably do need to be more explicit about the kinds of things we want students to be able to do, how we would know if they can do them, and to talk more concretely about like what the relationship between competencies or high levels of mastery on the standards and our grades actually are. But uh, unfortunately for now, they've been mostly divorced and we've tried to jerry-rig either through things like the AP exam or exit exams or just standardized end-of-course exams, kind of overlay a standardized assessment and then let people try to synchronize or sort of triangulate that information sort of on their own. So we talked some about motivation, but on the communication piece, one thing I want to draw out, uh, Jack, you in the book distinguish between short-haul messages and long-haul messages. Help me out here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, we went back and forth about whether or not to use trucking, uh, language for this, but decided to go with it. Uh, so the short haul message is to these immediate audiences of a student and the student's family, right? An educator communicating with a student, here's how you're doing in the course, communicating with that student's family, um, either to try to get that family involved, right? Hey, your student is getting a D in my class or just to keep them updated, right? Here's how things are going. It can also be from one educator to another, right? Oh, you want to know how Ethan uh, is doing in science, right? He's got a B plus right now. 
here are his assessments. Uh, didn't do well on the, um, on the uh, I, I don't know, his most recent biology test. And, and um, Jack, but, just to put in here, this is kind of like the brick by brick building, right? Is these short haul messages. It's not yeah. like when we give grades, we're really thinking that much about the long haul messages that are carried. Is that correct? Right. That's that's not the first and foremost use for educators, right? Educators are thinking about these immediate audiences and particularly the students right in front of them. But then thanks to the transcript, these short haul messages do end up piling up on one another in a way that becomes permanent on that transcript. And that's where you get this long haul communication, either across time or across space. So it could be that the student's transcript follows that student when the family moves from one school district or one state to another, or when the student goes from high school to college and has to apply. But it, it also is uh, a, a technology that allows for time travel, right? Because 10 years after the student has graduated from high school, right, it may be relevant what that student's GPA was when, you know, that student applies for a job. And that, that's particularly so with the case of graduating from college. And so the, that long haul message, that's the piece that really raises the stakes, Right, the short haul message. Sure, students are going to worry. At least a particular subset of students are going to worry if their parents see that they got, you know, a D plus in class. Right, that that Ethan failed the new biology quiz. But it's much more frightening to think, oh my God, all of this is permanent. I'm never going to be able to shake this. Right, it's it's like it's like the right to be forgotten on the internet that you know our counterparts in Europe are working on, where. Young people today are growing up and everything that's online from them is online forever, right? That totally nuclearizes the entire process of, of putting anything online. Well, the same is true for grades that are given in school, where starting at about ninth grade, right? Although in some places that pressure gets pushed lower and lower down through the grade span, but starting around ninth grade, a particular subset of students begins recognizing, okay, I am in a fight to the death against my peers for access to uh, a highly selective college or university. And other students are recognizing, okay, if I want to survive through school and do the minimum amount of work, right, here's what I've got to be doing, right? So students are smart. They see that this has been gamified, that it's a very high stakes game, and then they coordinate their effort based on the kind of outcome that they want. It's just that the effort that they're putting in is not always the effort that we want them to put in. And sometimes they're working really hard at things that don't have a lot to do with learning, right? They're, they're cramming the night before the test because they know that works to get a grade, even if it doesn't work to produce long-term learning, or they're learning only the things that they know they'll be assessed on, or they're learning behaviors that have nothing to do with learning, but that do result in higher grades like grade grubbing or, you know, copying each other's homework, a lot of the kinds of behavior that, again, are really easy to explain if we recognize students are smart, we've gamified this system in a not particularly thoughtful way, and they're responding in a way that in many ways is totally rational. So on the synchronization front, I mean, this one is probably one that most people don't think so much about. Ethan, what's the synchronization function? 
I mean, the synchronization function is this idea that there needs to be, especially in a decentralized system like ours, where we have very little appetite for sort of central control required courses, curricula stuff, we need common points of comparison. Um, so the idea of, you know, all, all classes are sort of created, we get a sort of bureaucratic equality that every class is worth a unit, every, all the units add up. And if you get a certain number of units, you get a diploma. Um, so that that's part of the synchronization function. There are also these synchronization functions where, again, for these long haul messages where you have, you know, local variation variety in either course titles or the rigor of, of grading. Um, we have always had in our system common points where we can sort of compare across otherwise uh, disparate elements of our system. So I mentioned the AP exam is a very good example of AP means AP everywhere. That's the whole point. And you take a common exam so that people can see and understand. Um, another example is like we haven't mentioned it yet, but the SAT, which is we don't have a standardized curriculum in America. We don't have standardized re requirements for what courses take. So colleges, and this is something they developed organically among themselves created a, a standardized assessment so that they could get all the students on one measure and they, you know, take it or leave it, but at least that gives them some common ability to compare students. Um, so, I mean, so that's a, that's a really important piece of our system is that you need to keep these things that are legible to other parts. I mean, one of the big problems that states have had, if they've tried to leave the A through F system, like Maine recently uh, experimented with a competency-based one through four system is it really broke the synchronization function. When students left Maine, it wasn't clear what other states were supposed to do with those numbers. Did the numbers simply map onto letters? How were they going to calculate grade point average? So that's a good example of like by, by sort of not allowing other people in other places to have a common understanding of what you're doing in assessment, it really broke down and it Maine had a lot of problems Parents didn't understand, other schools didn't understand, colleges didn't understand. And so that's that's kind of a good glimpse in, in what happens when you when you violate the sort of necessity of synchronization in a in a decentralized system. And it seems like you could go all in on on standardized tests. And you can just Completely. I'm gonna put it all on standardized tests and yep. then leave this synchronization function to them. But we don't really have the appetite for that. I mean, if anything, you know, post-secondary options are going test optional, not, not exactly. Anything. And I and I think this is a huge mistake, by the way, by removing these points of synchronization, you're just emphasizing, and this is a big point that we make in the book, is we have to think of these things as intertwined. The, the test scores, grades, and transcripts are intertwined. And if you remove, simply remove test scores because you think they're biased or you don't like ETS or whatever the reason, all you're doing is you're not changing that you need to motivate students. You're not changing that you need to communicate with local and distant audiences, long, long haul audiences. You're not changing synchronization. All you're doing is just removing one mechanism by which you're doing those things. And it makes all the other ones. Like if you think great inflation is bad now, imagine that it's the only way to communicate to a college about how you're doing. So I think it's a real bad idea. Um, and again, it goes to a, a, one of the reasons that we think and we talk about in the book that a lot of reform efforts have failed is because they don't really think about the what these uh, technologies are doing for our system and for the the stakeholders in our system. And they simply just say like, well, I think we should ungrade. Well, that's not going to help either. So people like to have these sort of pet targets that they don't like and they remove them. 
but it doesn't really change the fundamental like dynamics in the system. And in fact, I think in most cases makes them worse. Another great example of that is narrative grading, where you look at a small number of colleges and universities that experimented with narrative grading and what eventually happened, they needed to come up with a formula for translating the narrative into an A through F rating for students applying to graduate school, because the school was only thinking about the communication and motivation functions or the short communication function, but was not thinking about the long haul communication function or the synchronization function, right? That, that a narrative is not legible to anybody outside of Evergreen State College or, you know, UC Santa Cruz. Uh, and so the pressure of the need for synchronization there eventually led to not just the, the creation of these translation functions, uh, right? This kind of narrative equals an A, but the abandonment of most narrative grading schemes. So these are technologies that the system sort of runs on. You can't just like scrap them because you don't like some aspects of them, but you guys don't like some aspects of them, right? So <laughs> like, uh, Jack, let's start taking some pot shots. You write in the book, Grading, Rating, and Ranking, Distort, Learning, in Fundamental Ways. Um, you know, give me some of your top places where these are problematic. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the first thing that I'll start with is something that we talked about earlier, where I gave you the example of, you know, being graded on riding a bicycle before you knew how to ride a bicycle. The fact that there is no update to our assessment of what students know and can do means that students who start, quote unquote, behind end up staying behind largely. And I think that you know, there's a real equity argument to be made there about allowing students to show at some point that they learned how to do this stuff. Now, that is going to require us rethinking some things like just moving students lockstep through the system, moving students through, you know, regardless of, of how well they've done as long as they've earned a passing grade. But you know, I don't think it makes a tremendous amount of sense to keep branding students as bad students when it's simply that at this moment in time, they did not yet know whatever they were supposed to know at this moment in time. But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have known it, you know, a week later, a month later, a year later. So that that's one. And, I, and I'll give you one more uh, that we have talked about, at least that we've alluded to. And that is the motivation, right? Motivating students by saying, right, here's a kind of token that you'll be able to cash in at some point, right? I'm thinking of the, the, the tickets that used to come out of the skee-ball machine when I was a kid and I would go to the arcade, right? And you could trade those in for things like water guns. I don't know, maybe, maybe people bought other, I always had my eye on the super soaker there. Uh, and, and so thinking that that is the best way to motivate students rather than by actually convincing students that it is worth their time to be in school, right? That's a much harder thing to do. And I'm not naive enough to think that if we removed grades tomorrow, that students would suddenly start seeing the light and educators would have these brilliant explanations for why we're learning what we're learning today in class. But one of the things that Ethan and I point to in the book is kindergarten, right? Those kids aren't there because they're trying to earn tokens to cash in for future social and economic rewards. They're there because their teachers have convinced them 
that school is worth their time, that we're going to have fun today, that we're going to learn things that are going to empower us, right? That are going to enable us to move through the world like big kids. And that, you know, our relationships with each other are more meaningful because we're relating to each other in a sense more as equals, despite the fact that many of us in this classroom are four or five years old. So I, those are the two I would start with. I'll add one more that I think is really good. I, I should preface this by saying like, I'm pretty skeptical about almost all arguments that essentially start like schools have been doing this a long time. And by virtue of it, doing it a long time, it must be old and outmoded and out, out of fashion. I tend to think it's the opposite. We've come to solutions, you know, through trial and error over time. And there's like real wisdom embedded in it. But one place where I actually think that it is time to just update our practices is for the long time, there was a real physical, and I that mean that in a literal sense, physical restraint on what you could record and pass on to posterity when it came to recording student grades and work. So the transcript is small because it used to live in a filing cabinet permanently somewhere in a school building. That's simply not how transcripts live now. And so we, their technology has actually opened up a space where I mean, one of the reasons that grades often, I think, often get inflated and one of the reasons that they become, you know, kind of a wink, wink, like we can all game it. It's just us here is because no one it's very hard to get behind the grade. It's very hard to inspect what that grade. Now, normally we say, well, let's give a standardized test. But there's another way that we could do it that technology has allowed, which is if we started keeping transcripts that either required or invited uh, teachers to append to that grade an example of student work that reflected the grade that they, that students received, it would create an opportunity for people who are who want to dig deeper and actually say like, well, what is behind that A? Is it a real A or is it a fake A? Um, we can do that. I mean, there's nothing that prevents us technologically from doing that. It there were real hard limits. You could not have done that physically. It was not realistic in the 70s or 80s or even the 90s. But now with digital technologies, with the cloud, like there's no reason that we can't push the transcript to actually incorporate more of what students do and let that be a check on this idea that like, well, once the grade is recorded, like too late, you can't do anything. You can't inspect it any further. Like that's something that we actually could do that. It just seems like our practice is, is it's just outmoded and we have an opportunity with technology. And I think we should be thinking more and more about how to embrace that because I do think that will serve as a check on some of the some of the concerns that grades aren't aren't what they seem. On the motivation front, it seems to me that you know grades just have the ability to push students in let's say middle school who have better things to do than homework. They do not want to read about, you know, the 7 years war. Thank you very much. From their perspective, it is like slam dunk. But the grade is that kind of thing, right? It, you know, it's a fulcrum. And we use that leverage to get them to do their homework. And that's going to be different from kindergarten, right? So is there any way to maintain that kind of motivation without grades? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, look, we could have sold a lot more books probably if we had just said, like, let's embrace ungrading. Let's do it. Like, let's be radical. Let's be you know, and people buy it. Or if we had like, developed an app, just use our app. There just use go. our app. You don't need the thing, right? So, I mean, but, but we actually come down on, uh, I think, a quite pragmatic thing. So, like, there actually is no good replacement. Um, but 
the thing that we can do, the thing that can actually make it so that we can live with grades, right? So that grades don't undermine student learning is that we think more carefully about what it is that we are grading and making sure that we create a system and create standards um, that actually make it so that the work that we are grading and are asking students to do and motivating them maybe through their grades is worthwhile to do. So we talk a lot about that there are too many assignments in the US education system that are only good for the sake of producing a grade in the grade book and not for actually developing competencies that we think as educators or as parents or as citizens are useful to the students long-term. Like that's our call in, in, as being creators of the system. And so what we would like to see is more emphasis on developing or more emphasis on, on assignments that are focused on their actual use value, right? So what is it that we're asking students to do and is that important? And then also making sure that we give students, because those assignments are more important and more valuable, you know, as Jack has mentioned a couple of times, give them opportunities to actually grow and develop those capacities, whether that's because we allow them to rewrite, overwrite their grades, or we just are, are just focused and said, like, this is non-negotiable. We're going to append the work you do to your transcript so everyone can see what you've accomplished. I mean, I think that's the, that's the ticket for, at least from our perspective, it's not to try to pretend like you don't need this motivation or that you don't need to communicate about how students are doing in school. It's that you can refocus what we're grading rather than the grades themselves. And, and I would also just challenge the premise of the question there and say some students, right, a small subset of students are going to do the 32 math questions. And a lot of students are going to copy the math questions from the students who actually got motivated to do them. And a lot of students are going to just feel bad about themselves and not do them. Uh, so, you know, it, it isn't as if our current use of grades to motivate students works so fabulously well. Um, the solution is not going to be neat. It's not going to be clean and it's not going to be perfect. But the thing we're trying to replace is so clumsy and ineffective right now that even if we're only mildly effective in whatever the kind of reform package we put together, uh, that'll still be better than what we're presently doing. Okay, so I am totally digging the delicious irony of this, but it's time for this section on our podcast called Grade It. And, you know, we're the report card <laughs> podcast, so I'm going to make you guys grade a bunch of things. Um, so here we go. Ethan, AI's potential to improve grading and feedback for students. Um, I think a B. I think it can help you at the margins. It can help you identify really elite performance and really bad performance, but I am skeptical it's going to provide the kind of tailored structured feedback, at least in the short term, that we really need to give the students in the middle. Jack, the SAT. Ooh, uh, can't I just grade AI? Um, the SAT, uh, C minus. I appreciate what the SAT is trying to do. And if we used the SAT in a smart way, for instance, to identify students who maybe didn't show up uh, on their GPA, Right? Maybe didn't assemble the most impressive transcripts, but are displaying some real talent and ability with regard to whatever it is the SAT is able to actually assess. Then I think we've got a useful tool on our hands. Presently, it's not where it needs to be. So I'm trying to motivate ETS. Let's come up with a better, this is not your best work. Keep at it. We'll, we'll keep working together and maybe you can get where you need to be. 
Jack, I got a follow up for you. Super scoring on the SAT. You take it twice, you get your best sub scores so you can get oh, yeah, the highest yeah, yeah, yeah. one yeah, possible. Yeah. <laughs> so I, w- I was thinking about the, 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 the prefix super as if like, you know, may- maybe it would be a, a, a redo effort there. Yeah, super scoring on the SAT. Um, I think uh, B minus, good idea has been gamed by students who have more access to opportunities there, right? It's become a standard part of the the test prep approach to improving your score that helps for some students and not for most. Ethan, the GED. Ooh, I've written the histories on the GED. I'm going to give the, that a, a B minus because it's, I think it needs a serious update. It re- I, I really like opportunities to get beyond serious bottlenecks in our systems and not having a high school diploma is a major one. I think there are real concerns that it's not, it's not measuring the kinds of things that we really want or that will help make students successful. So it needs a refresh, but I think the premise is an A plus. The, the execution may be closer to a B minus. Jack, scouting's badge system. Oh, as opposed to the kinds of badges that are being used in education, right, like, Matt, know, I think. Fire building and first. Yeah, first yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. It, I think A minus, pretty good, right? Because we've got, we've got agreement upon what the actual skills are. We've got highly trained evaluators. We have young people who are actually bought into earning those badges. They're highly visible. I think that that those are the best kind of badges around right now. And they look cool. I, right? I see a, yeah, that's right, Ethan. I see a future where all American students wear a sash to school every day. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan, the academic tenure process. Ooh, ouch. Um, <laughs> Asking sort of in this context, right? In, in yeah. this context of what we're talking about, how does the yeah, academic no, tenure process I, I think I think it's... I think it's like a B in the sense of it, it provides a real motivation, which is important for those of people who have tenure immediately after you're not so sure what you should be doing, but I think it's a real, I think we have, it, it has the same problem of like the synchronization problem that we talked about where it's often, especially in a field like education, where you have historians and philosophers and psychologists, how to measure what achievement looks like in these different settings is really hard. And the tenure process is like a, a mostly good attempt to to do that. As somebody who holds a distinguished chair, I will say it is a perfect measure of merit. <laughs> Fair enough. Jack, <laughs> the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, B minus. Right? There's no great inflation for, for me, and I don't think I'm seeing it from Ethan either. If there were, I think I would say, well, A, a, a slash A minus, right? But uh, in the real world, B minus. It took out a lot of the most offensive pieces of NCLB, but didn't really take advantage of a lot of the upsides there. Some of that can be blamed on state chiefs, but yeah, I'll, I'll stay with B minus. All right, last one, Ethan. This one to you. AP exams. Ooh, I'm going to get some flack for this. I actually think that is uh, that's an A minus. You can complain a lot about the what the access to AP programs or whatever, but when I look at comparative, if if I have history students, would I rather them ha- be doing a document based question 
essay or some multiple choice thing, definitely the DBQ. I mean, it actually requires real historical thinking. You're engaging with documents. It's much closer to what we would think of as core practices of historians. I'm granting there are a lot of problems in terms of of access and content, but I think in terms of exams, it's much closer to things that I think are worth doing than, than the vast majority of tests. As a note, that's part of the reason why it costs. And it's one of the reasons why people attack because it's expensive, it's exclusive in that regard. But I think I would love to see more tests that are elaborate, like, you know, the AP US history exam than a lot of the stuff that we do. All right. Maybe that was a great inflation answer because I kind of maybe went a little easy on it. But I, I I'm, I'm, I'll back it. Ethan, you should have given your grade in an AP one through five. Ooh, right. Ooh, right. I hadn't thought of that. Sounded like a four, but uh, yeah. you, know, you gave it an A minus. There is no four point six. You're yeah, not allowed to give it all thing. Uh, okay, so you do say when you're talking about some of the complications of the system that grades only periodically motivate deep learning. Now, I get that, and I, I see that as sort of a, a negative take on them, although I think the difficulty of getting students to engage in deep learning, is that a half full glass or a half empty glass? I mean, how should we think about that? Ethan? I think of it as, I mean, I, I th this goes back to like my prior answer, which I think Grades are a very effective motivator. I'm more concerned about the things that we are grading students on. And I think that's the place where I would love to see adjustments to our grading system in the kinds of ways that we've talked about so far, where I think there's a real potential, like we do not advocate in the book getting rid of grades or getting rid of tests. What we talk about is reorienting them so that they are motivating and pushing students to do things that we actually think are useful. So I would say it's a, it's a glass half full uh, answer, but I'm curious what Jack would say. No, I, I think that's right. I think one of the reasons why some of the folks who have their own kinds of panaceas for our assessment woes don't like what Ethan and I have done here is that we do recognize that grades serve a real purpose, you know, and beyond our cultural attachment to them, they're doing things. They're not doing things particularly well, but I think it's naive to believe that if you take away something that has been functioning problematically, but functioning for over a century, that you are going to magically replace it with something flawless, seamless, and beautiful. I think instead, right, and, and this, you know, is probably the historian in me, I think instead we need to recognize that we don't know everything, we don't have all the answers, and that it's almost always better to tinker than to completely level something and build it anew. And I recognize that's a fairly conservative thing to be saying. Uh, and, and in the safe space of AEI's podcast, I'll say this is a fairly conservative book in the traditional sense of that word. Yes, the small c conservative, right? Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, you do a whole chapter, I think, on some international comparisons. How, do, how does this look? I want to leave some meat on the vine for paper, or meat on the bone, I guess, is the metaphor for folks to read the book. But briefly, is this just an American thing, Jack? No. And we were kind of surprised. We thought, you know, like, 
boy, it, it's going to sound naive coming from, you know, my answer like a minute and a half ago saying, you know, we're not naive, but we really did think we'd look around the world and we'd say like, oh, Finland or Singapore, or, you know, insert the name of some country here. They're doing it right. And what we saw was, wow, this is a really global phenomenon. In order to leave meat on the vine for our, I don't know, our, our cow grapes, here, uh, I will not say more about why that is, but we do answer that question. Well, it is funny that if you say A levels, immediately you know which country you're talking about. So that, yeah, there's some right. there's some international power here. So um, you've talked a little bit about your solutions. Uh, one of the key ones is making grades overwritable. You've talked a little bit about that, but let's talk about the concrete steps. If you're going to make grades overwritable. What is it that a district would need to do? What's the step to making grades overwritable? Jack? Yeah, I think the first thing that you need to do is identify what the competencies are that you want students leaving that subject at that grade with. And then you're going to need to identify key assessments that are aligned with those competencies. Now, that's going to be a lot for small districts. It's going to be a lot even for large districts. And so I think there is a role for the state here, right? The, the state does bring some capacity there in terms of doing the things that we shouldn't ask schools to do 98,000 times or districts to do 13,000 times, reinventing the wheel over and over again. But I do think that districts could take some meaningful steps at particular grade levels, in particular subjects, with particular key assessments, even if it's only to signal to students, hey, at these particular levels and at these particular moments, you're going to have a redo at some point if you need it. Now, you can adapt that and say, hey, there are lessons for educators in their own classes here. You don't need the district to get involved or even the school. Um, that that you know, educators could say, hey, I'm going to give you opportunities to revisit some of these assessments as the year winds on. But I do think there's a lot of potential there in the state, and it could be the district, in identifying cornerstone assessments, messaging really clearly to students. These are the things we want you to be able to do in this course. By the way, that could be highly motivating, right? You're going to learn real things in this course that are going to enable you to complete these cornerstone assessments. And I think that families would be really supportive of that, right? This is what my kid is going to learn how to do this year. I get to see that at the beginning of the year. I get to see my students work on these quote-unquote cornerstone assessments in order to track my students' progress. And it might give me more information than an end-of-year standardized test score report that says, you know, here is where the average student scores arrow. Here is where my student is scoring. It's like, yeah, but why? So, Ethan, we can't just willy-nilly overhaul systems, but for building leaders or teachers that are listening to this right now, they're, they're not in control of the system. They just can't take it apart overnight. What are some things that they can do to improve their grading practices um, that you think could be productive, even short of major system change? I mean, the, the thing that uh, sometimes people ask me, like how the book has affected the way I approach teaching uh, and, and grading my class. I mean, I do think the thing that I would encourage teachers to do is to 
try to, I mean, try to, we tried to give a language so that people could talk about this. But so in, in that language, thinking about, are there ways that I can uh, uh, reconnect with the short haul communication, just the community? Can I create spaces in my class to communicate with students and with their parents in giving motivation and giving feedback that I divorce from these bigger scale, longer term messages. I mean, especially for like high school teachers or middle school teachers, thinking about ways to create opportunities for learning and growth that don't always get put in the grade book. I mean, I think that's something really small. I also think sometimes we think that we need to be grading all the time or a lot and that a lot of columns in the grade book. So we need to fill them. I mean, I think something really, really valuable and 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 potentially transformative is for teachers to to focus on the things that are worth grading and worth doing in their subject, in their grade level, and try to give uh, a, a structure to your course that allows students to get multiple attempts at it, to build capacity and competency. And so that we're, we're using the structure and the motivation of grading, but towards things that we're willing to to stand behind. Like we don't have the technology yet, but imagine that a student had to append their work in the course to the grade at the end. You know, if we knew we had to stand behind the work and the grade, we might approach things a little bit differently. And that's something we can do just in the context of an individual classroom. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guests, Ethan Hutt and Jack Schneider. We'll include a link to Off the Mark and some of Ethan and Jack's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. When you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. Send us comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.